0: welcome to sojourner true thank you for staying with us this is your host margaret prescott the united states supreme court seems poised to strike down or at best greatly undermine roe versus wade um, and undermine a woman's right to choose or even take it away this is a sea change for women and for the political landscape in the united states also decisions on several high profile cases and their impact on the rise of vigilantism in the US, not to mention the rise of racial tensions and a sea change in the Americas. Honduras elects a left-leaning woman president and Barbados cuts ties with the queen and becomes a republic. The party of the late Hugo Chavez wins big in elections in Venezuela while Chile turns to the right. Meanwhile, tensions between the United States and Russia and China continue to build as President Biden calls a conference on democracy. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, and Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated, so on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding we also discussed the interrelationship between art and politics now for our news headlines
1: for pacifica radio i'm eileen Alfandari. The U.S. Senate has passed a stopgap spending bill that avoids a short-term shutdown and funds the federal government through February 18th. The vote of 62 to 28 came as Senate leaders diffused a partisan standoff over federal vaccine mandates. The House had approved the government funding measure hours earlier. It now goes to President Biden to be signed into law. Some Republicans opposed Biden's workplace vaccine mandates and wanted Congress to take a hard stand. Even even if that meant shutting down federal offices over the weekend by blocking a request that would expedite a final vote on the spending bill. Kansas Republican Senator Roger Marshall made the case for an amendment to prohibit federal dollars from being spent to enforce federal vaccine mandates.
2: As a physician, I've always supported the vaccine and I encourage Americans to talk to their doctor about getting vaccinated and about the booster. But But whether to receive the vaccine or not is a personal choice.
1: It should not be mandated via unconstitutional executive actions. Utah Republican Mike Lee said tens of millions of workers risked losing their jobs. Washington Democrat Patty Murray countered that the federal government should be using every tool to keep people safe.
3: COVID-19 has killed over 780,000 people in our country. This pandemic has a higher body count than any war we have ever fought in, and it's not over. We should be doing everything we can to stop this virus. No one wants to go to work and be worried they might come home to their family with a deadly virus.
1: Courts have issued orders against the federal mandates, including a ruling this week that blocks enforcement of a requirement for health care workers in 10 states. Earlier, a federal appeals court temporarily halted the federal requirement affecting employers with 100 or more workers. The Omicron variant of the coronavirus was identified in individuals in four more states, a day after a San Francisco resident was the first in the country to be identified as infected with the highly transmissible variant. At least five people in the New York City metropolitan area, a Colorado woman who had recently traveled to South Africa, and a Minneapolis man who had attended an anime convention in Manhattan late last month, all vaccinated, were infected with the Omicron variant. So was an unvaccinated Hawaii resident with no recent travel history. A second infection was identified in California and a vaccinated Los Angeles resident who had traveled to South Africa. New York Governor Kathy Hochul said officials are contacting the estimated 50,000 people who attended the anime convention in New York City last Last month, and we encourage people who have been at a conference recently uh, at the Javits Center during the dates of uh,
3: November 18th to 22nd that they also get tested. And we're going to make sure that everyone
1: knows we have a way to contact these individuals. There is a list of individuals who attended, and also they were vaccinated in order to go into this conference in the first place. The newly identified cases are believed to be just the tip of the iceberg. Their geographic spread, and some involving people who had not recently traveled, means the variant is likely already circulating domestically, at least some parts of the United States. Germany has announced tough new restrictions that forbid unvaccinated people from entering non-essential stores, restaurants, sports, and cultural venues. The government is also planning a parliamentary vote next month on a vaccine mandate. It was not immediately clear how it would be enforced. The tough new measures came as Germany's health minister said more than one percent of the population is currently infected with the coronavirus. Officials again urge people to get vaccinated if they haven't already done so. The Biden administration will again start enforcing the so-called Remain in Mexico policy, forcing migrants to stay in Mexico while they seek their asylum hearings. President Biden had scrapped the policy. A lawsuit by Texas and Missouri forced him to put it back into effect subject to Mexico's acceptance. The Biden administration and Mexican officials announced they had agreed on new terms, paving the way for the policy to once again go into force. Officials said what they term vulnerable people will be exempt, including unaccompanied children, pregnant women, physically or mentally disabled people, older people, indigenous people, and members of the LGBTQ community. Some immigrant advocacy groups criticized the Biden administration for the policy. The director of the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies said that for 10 months, the administration has used the pandemic as a cover to expel people seeking asylum to danger, ignoring objections by public health experts, human rights leaders and its own legal advisors. Karen Masalo added that, quote, now the administration is hiding behind a court order to revive and expand a policy that has caused untold suffering at our nation's doorstep.
0: And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Across the United States, women's right to choose and Roe versus Wade, the 1963 landmark decision protecting a woman's right to have an abortion is under attack. When the Supreme Court makes a final ruling in the Mississippi abortion case this summer, access to legal abortion could end for more than 100 million women across the United States. 21 states are poised to immediately ban or significantly Curtail access to abortions if the Supreme Court chooses to overturn or weaken uh, Roe versus Wade. Uh, let us go to a clip now from CBS News on this.
3: On Wednesday, heard arguments over a law in Mississippi that bans abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The case is putting the future of Roe versus Wade into doubt. CBS News Chief Legal Correspondent John Crawford reports. From across the country, thousands came to make their voices heard from Michigan. It's a very serious threat to our ability to shape our futures and our lives. This mother and daughter from Pennsylvania. I pray to God that it's overturned uh, for the sanctity, of, uh, upholding the sanctity of human life. Inside the courtroom, liberal justices argued Roe versus Wade was too established to overturn. It's been 50 years of decisions saying that this is part of our law. And would put at risk the court's legitimacy. WILL THIS INSTITUTION SURVIVE THE STENCH
4: THAT THIS CREATES IN THE PUBLIC PERCEPTION THAT THE CONSTITUTION AND ITS READING ARE JUST POLITICAL ACTS?
3: But a majority of the justices appeared inclined to uphold Mississippi's ban on abortions after 15 weeks. Chief Justice John Roberts suggested the court wouldn't have to overturn Roe. If you
5: think that the issue is one of choice, uh, uh, that would 15 weeks be an inappropriate line?
3: But that would still be a major retreat from its last big abortion case in 1992, when the court drew that line at viability around 24 weeks. Mississippi's only abortion clinic, now at the center of the fight, performs abortions up to 16 weeks. That's the question is where does the line get drawn? It's just, it's them chipping away. A lawyer from Mississippi said the justices shouldn't be drawing the lines, that the issue should be up to the states, which struck a chord with Justice Brett Kavanaugh.
5: Why should this court be the arbiter rather than uh, Congress, the state legislatures? state supreme courts the people being able to uh, resolve this
3: now back in 1992 it seemed almost certain that the court was going to overturn roe then but former justice kennedy changed his mind and provided that key fifth vote to save it so that is an important reminder that no matter how things may look today a lot can change which we now and when they hand down the decision which we expect in june lana We'll be waiting for that. All right, Jan, thank you. CBS News legal contributor and Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson joins me now for more. Jessica, a lot to dig into here. What, What do you think were some of the biggest takeaways from Wednesday's hearing? I think the biggest takeaway in having a few hours to reflect on it now is that the court is poised to overturn Roe v. Wade. I think the question this morning really was, is the court going to find some sort of middle ground where they say some version of, we're upholding the essential promise of Roe. You mm-hmm. still have a constitutional right to obtain an abortion. It's just much narrower than you thought it was. After really listening to the arguments and thinking about it, I don't think that's where the court goes. I think this court just says we are overturning Roe versus Wade. It was wrongly decided, in part because this is the most conservative court we've had since the 1930s.
0: All righty. So uh, there you have it. Um, the Supreme Court currently has six conservatives and six out of nine total judges are men. If Roe versus Wade is repealed, it will have a disproportionate impact on low income women with few resources uh, who could travel to get an abortion. Women's rights campaigners say that women will again have to resort to backstreet dangerous abortions, risking their lives. And while those opposed to abortion claim they are a right to life movement, after a child is born, it seems their support stops there. With few measures in place to support mothers, including no paid leave from wage work, no right to welfare or a wage for full-time moms. The years women spend raising children are called their zero years. They get no social security payment for that time, no right to health care. This week's uh, Supreme Court argument on abortion has pushed forward an urgency among Senate Democrats to change how the court operates, endorsing ideas like mandatory retirement for the justices or expanding the number of seats on the nine-person court. And actually, we I'd, I'd like to uh, welcome our, our panelists um, today, uh, Jackie Goldberg, governing member of the Los Angeles School Board District 5, former member of the California State Assembly. She has Previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council before being elected to the council. She served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Good to be back. Yeah, so good to have you back, Jackie. And Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program and works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization based in Mexico City. She's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. She is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets outlets laura welcome
4: thank you margaret and greetings to our listeners
0: all righty, and Dr. Gerald Horn, Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He's also the author of the award winning The Dawning of the Apocalypse The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Okay. uh, Jackie Goldberg, we're actually going to start with you today. I'm sure you were part of the movement um, pressing for a women's right to choose. And we had Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, among um, supporters of women's right to choose on the Supreme Court. uh, And now... Uh, you have the woman <laughs> um, uh, Coney Barrett who was nominated by trump a totally opposite uh, position so jackie Goldberg your thoughts here uh, on its on the impact of what the Supreme court seemed p- seems poised to do and what can be done about it there are all these discussions about uh, expanding the numbers of, of uh, justices on the court maybe establishing uh term limits but Obviously, the filibuster would have to be addressed if any of that will happen. Jackie Goldberg.
6: Yes, the filibuster is the problem, of course, because uh, the reality is is that the Supreme Court was really as it was originally thought of was never intended to do what it has done. It was changed by some of the early uh, Supreme Court justices, very early Supreme Court justices. So the point is, is that by law, for example— uh, Congress could say, "Here are a group of issues that the Supreme Court may not rule on. It has the right to do that. It could simply say that the, the significant rights of abortion, the rights to have a union, the right to do this, all of the, they could list areas where they would not be allowed to uh, look at cases. The second thing they could do is expand the court, which I think is probably the most likely, if they do anything at all. And the third is to say that, you know, you don't get this for life, kids. Uh, You know, so if you get appointed by some idiot uh, former president, uh, that doesn't mean that you get to screw the country for the rest of your life. Uh, Because the uh, right wing decides not only to appoint right wing justices with no morals or ethics of any type, but only politics – They also decide that these people will be uh, as young as humanly possible so that they can screw the country for as long as possible. This has been going on for a very long time and only was exacerbated by the fact that Democrats were prevented from having an appointment uh, under Obama and was exacerbated by the fact that they changed their... their, uh, rule on on uh, how many votes it took to uh, 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 find a Supreme Court justice. My goal, however, is to encourage them to actually uh, do some things like look at the possibility of impeaching uh, at least two, the last two that were appointed, both of whom continuously and repeatedly said that they believed that there was precedent, and they would not overturn precedent. That was not their job, not the job of the court to create new law, not the job to overturn long-term precedent. Well, 49 years is about as long a precedent as we have. And I would say that I think that they should be impeached. That's, that's what I would do. That's where I would start. I would go after impeachment. Even if you don't win, you hold up to scorn people who sit and lie for hours and hours and hours about who they are and what they will do, and then when they get on the court, do exactly what we knew they would do. And by the way, if you haven't sent a letter thanking Collins in, 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 in Maine for her vote that she knew, she said, oh, my God, I know they will never do this. DeRoe, I'm a feminist. I am, never will let that happen. Well, I sent my letter. I hope all of you send your letter thanking her for the condition that we're in.
0: Right. Thank you, Uh, Jackie Goldberg and Laura Carlson. I mean, it's interesting where you have the rest of the world, even countries that had been resisting a woman's right to choose in the direction of women's right to choose. I mean, after all, look at what has happened in Mexico, for example. Here you have the United States Supreme Court trying to turn back the clock on women. And as somebody said, well, just turning us into vessels, (laughs) Laura Carlson.
4: That's right. And that wave of advances in women's right to choose is clearly the result of grassroots organizing because the vast majority of women in the world believe in that right. So what we're seeing in the United States is absolutely frightening, if not unexpected. It's overturning five decades of protection with no exception for rape or incest, according to this Mississippi ban. As you mentioned, it affects mostly, as we've always known, poor women who do not have access to any other options and who live in the most patriarchal and conservative states. It criminalizes women overall. It exercises absolute control over their labor force participation and their life choices, and also, as you mentioned, it's utter hypocrisy, because there's no concern for children who are living and how they grow up within the country. It's completely focused on control over women, and the other arguments are just window dressing. Kavanaugh has acted exactly as predicted. I don't think anyone really believed him when he said that he would not overturn Roe v.ersus Wade that he would respect precedents, And so now, after sexually abusing women through the use of physical violence and getting away with it and getting a Supreme Court appointment in spite of it, he's the point person for stripping women of their rights to control their own bodies, which is another form of, yeah, potentially court-sanctioned violence that destroys lives. And there we have Amy Coney Barrett right alongside. In terms of the legal aspects of this, I agree that there's no middle ground. It's become very clear that what they're looking at is overturning it and when Chief Justice Roberts talks about chipping away at the strategy by simply apparently reducing it to 15 weeks since he is playing with that viability rule which is at the center of the um of the previous rulings there's no question now and there's no question regarding the intentions and the declarations that have come out that what they're really doing is overturning it. There we have Pence standing up to say that they are now sending Roe versus Wade to the ash heap of history. This doesn't just reduce the viability turn. It really opens the door to striking down the protection uh, at the core of, of the liberty argument under the 14th Amendment. And then, as you mentioned, there are 24 states, so when they talk about states' rights and still sending it to the state level. Uh, that argument is also not uh, a real argument, because there are 24 states that have joined an amicus curia brief supporting Mississippi's position. And most importantly, that's just not the definition of a right, that it can be decided by legislatures of, of men in different places when It's a core right, and I would agree with uh, Jackie Goldberg that there should be some protection of core rights, especially for women. That makes it impossible for these groups of, of conservative and illegitimate justices to strike down something that has such a direct impact on lives. When we talk about this ruling that's due to come out in June, probably, from what people are saying, And it's a potential impact on the elections. I'd be interested to hear what my colleagues think about this, but I think it's a real disadvantage to Republicans. Republicans, There are all kinds of women who are scared about losing this right for themselves. Fifty years, they've grown up with it. Choosing maternity is important to women of all parties and ideologies. And um, many were just glued to the court proceedings. Anti-choice activists are very visible, very vocal, but the polls still say that it's white men who see this as an identity wedge issue and obviously not the population that would be directly affected. One of the latest ones shows that only 27% of the population is in favor of overturning Roe versus Wade. And the other factor <laughs> is that this could really mobilize uh, feminists, other women, and pro-choice people who might otherwise not bother to vote me in terms in the midterm election. so I think it could really have a negative effect on conservative voting.
0: Right. Thank you, Laura Carlson, and and Dr. Gerald Horn. Um, a few things here. While on the one hand, um, it will have a. a, a disproportionate impact on impoverished women. On the other hand, uh, Loretta Ross, who has been a black woman who's been in the reproductive uh, rights movement for a very long time, and one of the founders of Sister SisterSong, um, working on these issues, um, she said on, on the show she was on, I think it was yesterday, and she said that fundamentally, this is related to the panic over the um, the United States becoming a quote unquote majority um, people of color co- country in in short measure and of the drop in the birth rate of white babies. And when it comes to black children and and black maternal health or black infants or black people generally, there is less concern about whether we die or we don't, as we have seen um, pointed out by the Black Lives Matter movement. So there is that on the one hand. On the other hand, um, the Republican Party, they are angling, they want back. White suburban house, white suburban women. And we saw in the vote in Virginia for governor, for example, that that vote went back to the Republican. Candidate and key in that vote was the question of race and the concern about the teaching of the true history of the United States that may just be too much for the you know white students. It's it's too traumatic for them to know about the genocide, slavery, etc. So your thought in all this and and what you know, what it could mean, not only for women, but in, in the broader uh, political picturing, including on race. Dr. Horn.
5: Well, I think that Loretta Ross makes a sound point when she suggests that a lot of the anti-choice movement and propaganda is pivoted around the issue of this so-called declining Euro-American majority. And there is a d- dedicated interest and making sure that women of European descent have more babies. Now, certainly, there's little or no interest in the high infant mortality rates in the black community or the fact that across class lines, you've had a spectacular rise of death and childbirth of black women. I mean, look at what almost happened to tennis champion Serena Williams and star Beyoncé Knowles-Carter, who also suffered during childbirth, and the specialists suggest that it has everything to do with racism. So we cannot take at face value the rhetoric of these anti-choice propagandists. And with regard to the Dobbs case coming out of Mississippi, it's apparent that the Supreme Court is determined to wreck the Roe versus Wade decision, either A, throwing the choice or reproductive freedom back to the states, or B, legalizing abortion nationally from the Atlantic to the Pacific, if that happens, the efforts taking place in California, Illinois, and New York to prepare to serve women coming from out of state, such as Texas, seeking an abortion uh, will go for naught. I'm afraid we're going to have to ask another difficult question as well, which is, is it irrelevant That the six-person Republican majority on the Supreme Court that may wreck Roe v.ersus Wade, is it irrelevant that they're all Catholics? And uh, that's a very difficult question to ask, because obviously we want to evade the kind of religious tensions that have been a signature in the North Atlantic bloc uh, for centuries now. But I'm afraid that's a difficult question to ask, because in order to ask that question, we also have to raise the question of the bipartisan foreign policy that has led to a retreat of women's rights around the globe. I'm thinking, for example, of the bipartisan foreign policy that led to the rise of these right-wing nationalist regimes in Poland and Hungary, who are busily circumscribing women's rights as we speak. I don't think that you can separate that from the attempt to do the same thing right here in the United States of America. Uh, With regard to whether or not this will have electoral consequences. I'm not so sure about that, but certainly I would prefer for the Republican Party to think that it will be damaging to their efforts in November 2022
0: right thank you so on that note uh, we are going to take our station break now and then next coming up a sea change in the Americas and we'll talk about what all that uh, might mean and also the rise of vigilanteism in the United States and other uh, and also some international issues stay with us our panelists will remain we'll be right back
4: hold on to me
1: me go who cares what they see who cares what they know your first name
2: is free last name is dumb she you still
7: believe in
5: where we're from
0: that. Freedom by Pharoah Williams. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org where you'll find a community calendar of videos and much more. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud and In our tradition, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Chicago, Illinois, in the United States, and internationally, we're delighted to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in India. It is our weekly roundtable. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Porn. And next, we're going to go a bit to the international front, sea change in the Americas. Honduras elects a left-leaning woman president. Barbados cuts ties with the queen and becomes a republic. The party of the late Hugo Chavez wins big in elections in Venezuela while Chile turns to the right. And also internationally on another front, tensions between the United States, Russia, and China, uh, continue uh, to build. Let us uh, go now to a clip. First, we'll hear a clip about the Barbados Republic, and then about the Honduras election. Hi, Sandra Prunella Mason do
7: swear that I will well and truly serve Barbados. 55 years after gaining independence from the UK, Barbados cuts its last formal tie to its former colonizer. The royal standard flag lowered and replaced by the presidential standard, marking the end of the queen's reign on this island, and a new future under a Barbadian-born head of state appointed by the Barbadian parliament.
0: Our country and our people must dream big dreams and fight to realize them.
7: Prince Charles invited as a guest of honor amongst the likes of pop star Rihanna, He used the moment to acknowledge Britain's role in the slave trade. From the darkest days of our past and the appalling atrocity of slavery, which forever stains our history, the people of this island forged their path with extraordinary fortitude. It was unusually stark language from the UK, but disappointed those holding out for a formal
1: apology. Prince Charles is part of the royal family. The royal family contributed to slavery. The royal family benefited from slavery financially. And many of our African brothers and sisters die In battle, okay, for change.
7: It was in the 1620s that British settlers arrived in this paradise and they went on to build vast fortunes from the sugar and the slave trades. Calls for compensation for that dark period in British history grew louder during the Black Lives Matter protests, as did the push to a republic. Clearly, people Uh, in in Africa, in this region, in all parts of the world, still feel that profound sense of injustice. And it's quite right that we recognize that, that we uh, we are determined that such a thing could never happen again. The queen is still head of state in 15 countries around the world, and Republican movements in those nations will be looking at what's happened here in Barbados and hoping that this will add momentum to their own campaigns.
2: Honduran presidential candidate Ziomara Castro looks set to be the nation's first woman president and put the country's left back in power. On Monday, one of her supporters was elated and expressed hope in Castro's campaign promises.
3: This woman is worth more than seven men. She fought and won, thank God. We hope that she'll improve what she said, jobs, health and education. As Hondurans, we have a right to our health.
2: Castro has promised big changes in Honduras, including a constitutional overhaul, fighting corruption alongside the UN, and loosening restrictions on abortion. With just over half the ballots counted, a preliminary tally had Castro at a nearly 20-point lead over conservative Nastri Asfura. Celebrations broke out at Castro's campaign headquarters Sunday night. Supporters danced, waved flags, and chanted J-O-H out referring to two-term conservative president Juan Orlando Hernández
6: All righty,
0: there you go so uh, Barbados, Honduras Laura Carlson, we're actually going to start with you uh, because there there are some major changes uh, that are happening Um, not only Barbados Honduras, but other uh, uh, elections that have happened in Venezuela in in Chile, also uh, in, in Nicaragua um, but I, I wonder your thought on it, thoughts on this, because Barbados, after 396 years, now has a woman president, a woman um, prime minister, and a woman prime minister that's very progressive. I mean, she is calling for reparations. She uh, establishing relationships, direct relationships with um, Ghana, Kenya, and other parts of the continent of Africa. She took soil from the Barbados Newton slave burial ground when she went to visit um, Ghana. She made quite a stir at a speech she gave at the UN where she quoted Bob Marley. She made quite a stir at the COP26 conference, speaking for a lot of the global South, where she also uh, went on to quote another musician, Eddie Grant, about who will mourn for us on the front lines. So, Uh, Laura Carlson, just your thoughts on the implications of the elections on the one hand, and then what's happening in this small island nation of Barbados on the other. Laura Carlson.
4: Well, for once, we have really good news coming out of Latin America and the Caribbean, in particular from these two, uh, the elections and the decision of Barbados, the elections in Honduras. In Barbados, I think it's really important to note that the tiny island country has made this decision for itself, which will change its political future, but it's also a result and both a symbol and an example for a very widespread decolonization movement within Latin America that exists in almost all the countries that has expressed itself in different ways. So the fact that it is no longer has the Queen of England as its head of state is is again an example for the continent, and also, as you mentioned, an example for Africa as well. With the strong leadership that's coming from women in the country, um, she's my hero in many ways. The, the speeches have been fantastic, and have marked a path for uh, for countries throughout the world. What we're seeing here is a major step forward that I think will be replicated by other countries as those movements grow stronger. In the case of Honduras, it's been a long road. We're talking about since the military coup in 2009, the country has gone from bad to worse, the United States supporting governments, one after the other, that had no popular legitimacy and that imposed this neoliberal model on the country that stripped them of public goods, that displaced local campesino, peasant farmer, and indigenous communities to take natural resources for transnational corporations, that has been famous worldwide for its levels of corruption stealing public resources from an extremely poor population, complicity with organized crime, the brother of the president convicted for drug trafficking in a New York court, and the president himself implicated in that case and others. You know, it had it had really become the example of a basket, pa- of a basket case, despite the struggle of the Honduran people to try to fix things, to try to defend themselves to try to defend their land and their resources and the example, um, the global example of individuals like land defender, indigenous land defender, Berta Cáceres, who was assassinated to show how high the stakes had become in Honduras. So now they have not just a woman president, but a feminist left-wing president in the country. And that doesn't mean things are going to change from one day to another. I've talked to a lot of people there and they're celebrating in the streets, not just in party headquarters, because for a lot of people it wasn't about the party. It wasn't about even the candidate or the elections. It was about getting some breathing room. It was a life-and-death issue of whether in their movements they could continue to survive as they defended what's most important to their communities. So there is a lot of joy, a lot of hope, something that Honduras had not had as evidenced, by the fact that, you know, hundreds of thousands migrated every year uh, when they would have stayed home if they had had that opportunity. And now there is hope, and they're facing some big obstacles. The United States has indicated that it will not support demilitarizing the country, where the, where the military has been used throughout the country to repress popular movements. There are some indications that it will continue to impose these mega-projects an extractivist model of exploitation of natural resources that has caused so many conflicts with local communities and has drained resources from the country. Uh, The president has come out in favor of abortion rights, talking about uh, the, the first issue we discussed, and has been very clear that she will defend women's rights, and the international right was involved in this election and will be involved in the pushback to all those measures. In Honduras, they have a neoliberal experiment, the most radical in the world, of actually ceding national territory and resources to transnational corporations where they are exempt even from national law. It's called the Zones of Economic Development. And so there are major investors that are very interested in making sure that the new president doesn't revert that, and she has promised to do it. Uh, It's going to be a time when, with this new hope, we have a major responsibility as the international community to support Their attempt to turn their country around at this time, and solidarity will be crucial on that. Very quickly, looking at some of the other elections, you know, we can't talk about a tide because there's some mixed results. In the regional elections in Venezuela on November 21st, President Nicolas Maduro's allies won 20 of 23 government posts. The opposition participated for the first time in a long time, and election observers stated that the process was was peaceful and uh much improved over past elections in terms of equity and access to the vote. So we now have a renewed legitimacy that hopefully will contribute to serious discussions and peace talks. The talks that were taking place in Mexico actually broke down for be due to a provocation by the US government. There are clearly forces that do not want to see a peaceful solution in Venezuela because what they want is regime change no matter how many lives it costs, and it's already costed many, many lives due to the extreme economic sanctions. Now it appears with this vote people are saying, why is the U.S. government starving my family? And there may be less support for these cruel sanctions that are in place. In Chile, we have the ultra-right winning the first round. However, there were millions, I mean not millions, but many parties involved, so as we look at the situation now, it looks like the left-wing young candidate is leading for the second round, and that's a very important process because they're going through a constitutional assembly and looking to put more equitable and people-based policies into effect in the very near future.
0: Right. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, breakdown, Laura Carlson. And uh, Jackie Goldberg, you very well may want to comment on these uh, sea change in the Americas. Um, You know, but uh, one thing I'm I'm thinking of is, you know, I'm from Barbados, so proud of my island nation there. And our our first prime minister, Um, who tried for a republic but didn't get it, one of the things he said in a message really to the United States is Barbados is a friend to all but a satellite to none. And that really takes us to other... Issues on the international front. You know, this kind of growing tensions between uh, China, um, Russia, and the United States. I'm sure Dr. Horn will want to weigh in on, on that as well. Um, as the, the Biden administration has called this conference of uh, democracy, he's invited the opposition, the defeated opposition uh, figure uh, um, from Venezuela, which a lot of people are, are shocked at. But the U.S. kind of trying to maintain this kind of International hegemony as the, the democratic leader of the world. So you may want to comment on that as well. Um, Jackie Goldberg.
6: Well, I think Honduras is showing us how to have a peaceful transition from one administration to another. I think we can learn a lot from them uh, because that's what they did. And it's a very important thing that that happened because, you know, in the past when When progressives, social democrats, socialists of any type in Central America in particular, but also in South America, were elected, United States and other countries used to move in and try to overthrow them. That's Why I'm so distressed by what's happening in the Nicaragua elections of November. Uh, You know, they outlawed most of the parties. Anytime anybody can claim 97% of the votes, I am very disturbed. So I think what we're seeing, though, is, is that 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 the 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 drift toward um, authoritarian regimes can be seen in in Chile, in Costa Rica, uh, in a few other places in South in Nicaragua. Uh, clearly, that that's in one direction, and in the other direction, you have. Uh, the wonderful changes that are happening in Honduras, we hope in the Barbados, but it 's not just there too there are There are struggles going on in Brazil uh, there are struggles going on in a variety of places in Central and South America, which I believe are going to predict in some ways the response to the americas the uh, North American country of the United States, and our drift, not drift, our active movement toward. Uh, one party desiring authoritarian, non-democratic rule. So I think that what we're seeing, though, is, is largely that the whole world is kind of going through this, not just the United States. And I find that frightening because the amount of money and the amount of military behind those people who want authoritarian, not democratic rule is pretty high. Uh, just take a look at the amount of money that former President Bo- uh, Number 45 has raised over this period of time. He's raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's the problem with all of these situations, is, is that money is on the side of reaction. And what that means for everything progressive in the whole world is is that we have to be better organized. We have to do the things that make a difference. Labor has to take a much bigger role in the United States, and it has to be a role that speaks out about democracy and on and on. So I, 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 I will stop there. But I think that what we're seeing are positive things in some places, negative things in others, as the whole world is sort of going through this process of what is democracy? Is democracy useful? Can democracy get things done? No, no, no. I think authoritarianism is much easier and gets things done. It's stable, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, that, that's sort of my take. I'm looking at the world as a whole and seeing enormous change.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Dr. Gerald Horne, your thoughts?
5: Well, first of all, with regard to this summit on democracy that Mr. Biden is organizing, it's almost like a bad joke in light of the attempted coup in the United States on January 6th and light of the attempts throughout the South in particular to repress and suppress voting rights. It's rather strange. The United States is now going to instruct the world on democracy. It's a page from the Cold War playbook insofar as it's obviously targeting the enemy of the day, which is the People's Republic of China. But unlike the Cold War, when you had African and Caribbean nations surging to independence and the United States felt it had to appeal to these nations more effectively by getting its human rights house in order, therefore you have the Voting Rights Act of 1965 coming out of that context, today even though the Cold War playbook is being used, it's going in the opposite direction with regard to suppression and repression of democracy in the United States. At the same time, Mr. Biden is mounting the bully pulpit to chide other nations about their alleged lack of democracy. Uh, with regard to Barbados, this is very significant, and it's also uh, rather unusual, I would say, with regard to the Caribbean nations, because generally speaking, uh, Jamaica is to the left of Barbados and is in the vanguard. And yet, Jamaica still has Queen Elizabeth as the head of state, and Barbados, Barbados has moved to its left. And I think it's very significant as well because it'll make Barbados better positioned to clamor for reparations uh, from London, which is the order of the day. And also, we should not see the queen being the head of state as being an irrelevancy. The queen has a local representative known as the governor general uh, in Barbados until quite recently, and of course, still continuing in Canada, in Australia, in Jamaica, et cetera. And over the decades, the governor general has been involved in domestic politics. For example, in the effective coup d'etat against the Labour Party government in Australia in the mid-1970s, which, of course, uh, has been depicted by Hollywood in the film I recommend, starring Sean Penn, The Falcon and the Snowman. So you can't get away from the fact that Barbados has moved closer to democracy by saying that the head of state of that Caribbean island, it's not something to be inherited uh, through heredity, that is to say Prince Charles, supposedly, if they had not changed the system, would be the next head of state uh, in uh, Barbados. And it seems to me that you can't talk about democracy on the one hand, and on the other hand, say say that the head of state can be passed down through matter of genes
0: right thank you dr horn and just uh wrapping up uh jackie goldberg we're actually going to start with you on this on this segment because uh and and hopefully uh dr horn and others will have a chance to weigh in um, the rise of vigilantism in the United States. Of course, it's had that history. The uh, the recent high-profile trials, um, the Rittenhouse uh, verdict in, in particular, but also in the Charlottesville uh, trial, you saw that uh, the jury could not come to a decision on the KKK Act um, way back from the 1800s uh, in terms of federal charges. And the, that is the act that some elected officials are going to be using um, to sue the Trump administration around what happened on January 6th. And then another very disturbing breaking news thing that I saw is that Florida Governor DeSantis, who is trying to be to the right of Donald Trump, He wants, uh, he's proposing a new civilian military force in Florida that he would control. Legally, apparently, Florida has the right to do it. But a lot of people are saying that DeSantis wants his own vigilante uh, militia. Uh, So, Uh, On that, but also one other thing for you to comment on Jackie Goldberg being in, you know, in the schools, you know, on the school board, you know, there is this thing of um, the the fear of what some people are calling the white fragility of, well, our little white children, we really can't teach them what they uh, um, mistakenly call critical race theory, but the history of the United States when it comes to slavery or whatever. It's it's just too much for our ears to, to take or for our children to learn. Uh, Jackie Goldberg, your thought, thoughts on all this?
6: Well, I'm going to start with the latter, obviously. Uh, we just had a hearing yesterday in, in uh, Los Angeles Unified, about our intent to have by 2023 a requirement that uh, incoming freshmen before they graduate uh, take at least one semester course of ethnic studies. And so what we're trying to say here is is that it is important for young people and actually for all people to understand the real history of the United States. Vigilantism, for example, began, I believe, in South Carolina in like 1767, with the regulators. So we're not talking about something new in American history. We're talking about this whole notion of citizens' arrests, and that was a big part of that uh, particular uh, uh, unsuccessful uh, 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 attempt to explain why three white men could run down a a black jogger and kill him. Uh, So what we're talking about in terms of history is, is that it is time for us to actually talk about the real American history, which includes Enormous amounts of fabulous struggles for freedom and liberty to expand rights, to expand rights for women in the LGBTQ community, to expand rights for African Americans and Mexican Americans, to expand rights for people, for women to have reproductive services. They've been wonderful struggles, but those struggles have to be put in the framework of why those struggles were necessary. So we talked briefly about struggles in American history. But we don't talk about the context of systemic racism, of systemic sexism, and of course the whole notion of being uh, the, whole, the, whole, uh, the whole male-white dominance. No, children are not fragile. Actually the two people who testified the best at the hearing uh, yesterday at LAUSD Board were two students from a high school who had taken an ethnic studies course in the 10th grade. And here's what they said. It made me think I should have had this in the fifth grade because I've been learning things wrong for so many years. And the other one said, well, you know what? And they, one was white and one was biracial. The white guy said, you know, I want to tell you something. It's made me think about all of my other courses and how those other courses are being taught, what those textbooks are like. Children are not fragile. In fact, children are going to lead the way in this struggle around American history, because kids do want to know, and they've made it very, very, very clear that they want to know the truth. And I think that that's an important change that's going to be a struggle in public education. I think it's why so many folks are trying to uh, misinformation, spread misinformation, that critical race theory, which is an important part of our struggle. But it is a university notion of looking at systemic racism, let's say, in education or systemic racism in uh, uh, law. The UCLA Law School has a systemic racism course in law to deal with that whole issue. Systemic racism is is a general term that I use to talk about all the types of discriminations that this country has been a part of. But it is a part of the notion that you can undo it, that you can understand it, that you can put it in a context, that you can fight it. And I think that that's a a very positive part of the future of public education.
0: Right. Thank you, Uh, Jackie Goldberg. Looking at the clock, Laura Carlson, you likely will have about just one minute and a half. Keep that in mind. And for those who want to know about Dr. Horn's thoughts on all of this, we did a one hour special with Dr. Horn uh, last Friday. And I suggest that you all listen up because he had a lot to say about all of these topics. But Laura Carlson, you have about a minute and a half on this. Just very quickly,
4: I think the verdict in the Charlottesville case, even though it awards $25 million in damages, even though the state has pressed the conspiracy charges, by deadlocking on the federal conspiracy charges, they're sending a message that this was an individual and not structural problem in many ways. The 1871 KKK Act is significant. The National Constitution Center cites historian Eric Foner in saying that that legal offensive really broke up the Klan at the time, and it's based on whether they engaged in race-based violent conspiracy. That needs to be said. That needs to be identified. The protesters, it was revealed, discussed hitting protesters, I mean, the organizers of the right-wing rally discussed hitting protesters with cars in what they call the fast loft of the nickname for neo-Nazi Richard Spencer's apartment. There were Nazi symbols and Confederate flags. The conspiracy was obvious, and this charge is important, especially as it's also being cited in the January 6th lawsuit.
0: Right. Thank you, uh, Laura Carlson. And uh, today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott, uh, audio engineer, Wendell uh, Handy, our assistant producer, uh, Romero Funes. We'd like to thank our roundtable panelists. if you'd like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archives and or uh, at 1-800-735-0230. We appreciate you listening. This is your host Margaret Prescott.